Good afternoon. I think we'll get started. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and we're delighted to see all of you here this afternoon. This is the sixth year for the um, International Women's History Month Literary Festival, and uh, I have to confess it's one of my favorite events of the whole year. I always look forward to it, and I want to thank um, the two women who are standing over by the door who are, are really the, the forces behind this event. Linda Duggins from Hachette Book Group um, is, um, is a person who invites um, the writers every year. And so thank you, Linda. I don't know what we'd do without you. And not only that, but she serves as the moderator. So you will um, get to hear a lot from her this afternoon. And Joy Bramble, the publisher of the Baltimore Times. And she has done a lot to help with promotion of the event, as she always does. And um, I'm going to ask Joy to come up and say a few words about the Antigua and Bar Bar Buddha, Antigua and Barbuda Literary Festival in November. Joy? Good afternoon. Thank you so very, very much for coming. And um, it's a delight to see all the women here. And um, want, of course, to thank the authors for coming from long and far distances. I come from a little island called Montserrat, where until I was about maybe like 15, there wasn't a bookstore. There was just a library. And um, I think by the time I was 12, I had read every book in the library, including the encyclopedias. <laughs> So I've always loved books. I think that books and authors, they open, open the minds of um, people and children. I remember that I was in China about five years ago, and I was on a little motorboat in a place called Guilin. And all of a sudden, it was like deja vu. And then I remembered sitting in the library in Montserrat one time with an encyclopedia open, and there was a picture of these people almost in the same place. And I felt as if I had been there myself. <laughs> so I want to thank all of these lovely women who actually write. They put words together in ways that we want to read and make us feel fabulous, make us feel sad, we cry, <laughs> we're happy, we laugh, and we dance. But I wanted to also tell you about our festival in Antigua. And actually, want to thank Linda and credit Linda with um, this. And I'm not going to tell you a bunch of stuff about her, because you should just Google her and find out how fabulous she actually is. <laughs> but I will tell you that it was providential to me, the way we met at another festival in, in, um, in, in Atlanta. My feet were killing me, so I went upstairs to the hotel to change my shoes. And when I came down, there was no seat for me at the table. And a guy came to me and said, Miss, come over here. Way over in the corner, there's a table there, and there's one seat. And as God would have it, who was sitting next to me but Linda Duggins? I told her why I was at that particular bus book festival, and she said, I'll help you. Of course, I didn't believe her. So about six months later, I called her. She says, okay, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and that's the end of it. Anyway, every year, we have a little festival in Antigua, and it's... We've invited um, authors to come, and we invite people to come. And the reason for the festival, actually, is because 
that same little island I told you about, the volcano blew it away about 15 years ago. So my sister moved to Antigua, and I followed her to Antigua, built a house there. I'm sitting around one day and said, let's go to the library. My sister says, there's no library in Antigua. And I'm trying to figure out what country is it that has no library? You know, the volcano, uh, uh, an earthquake destroyed it in 1972 and has never been rebuilt. And so I thought this, having a book festival there, letting kids see people who could write and people who look just like them, and sort of trying to, uh, trying to give them you know, the same joy of reading that I had, had as a child. Um, this year, it's November, is it the 8th to the 9th, Linda? I think it's the 8th and 9th. We invite you down. If you can't come, you can go to our website, and you can also make a, a contribution, because it's extremely expensive to put on. Antigua is a lovely island. It's 365 beaches, one for every single day of the year. And it very, very rarely uh, rains. And we always have it in a lovely hotel next to a beach. So we invite you there. And with those few words, I'd like to invite Linda to the podium. And thank you very much. Before Linda starts, I just want to remind you all that there will be um, a reception and book signing on the second floor, in the second floor corridor, uh, after the program has concluded. So we hope that you'll come down there. Um, Barnes & Noble from the power plant will be down there selling copies of the author's books. And we have some um, wonderful refreshments. And you'll have a chance to meet and talk with the authors personally and get your books signed. So um, please plan to stick around after the program is finished. OK, Linda. Good afternoon, everybody. How y'all doing? Welcome. This is the sixth annual International Women's History Month Literary Festival. And for the last six years, this event has graciously and lovingly been put together with the help of Judy Cooper, Enoch Pratt, Joy Bramble, the Baltimore Times, Ella Curry, EDC, my buddy, Wendy, um, Wendy Coakley-Thompson, who's not here, she's with the DC Examiner, and also Anthony McCarthy of the Anthony McCarthy Show on WEAA. Folks love this festival, and we are always super excited to be here. You guys sit back and get ready for a treat. Layla Cobo, say hi, Layla. <laughs> Bernice McFadden, Jacqueline Luckett, and Reiko, Reiko Rizzuto. I'm sorry, Reiko. I know that's the Rana Reiko. I call her Reiko, and you may as well. <laughs> <laughs> they have created expansive canvases through their beautiful, beautiful writing. And we all get to conjure our very own existence through space and time through the writing that they have prepared. We're going to talk today about legacy and memory, survival, her story, his story, Truth, discernment, reinvention, expectation, family, love, and freedom. This year is also the 75th anniversary of Zora Neale Hurston's mind-blowing, their, their eyes were watching God. Anybody read that book? Can I get an amen? amen? I love that book. Over the last 35 years or so, I think I've read that book about five times. And every time I read it, there's something that much more beautiful about it. You know that Zora Neale was an anthropologist and a writer and a pioneer. 
and she had a lot to say and extremely creative ways of getting her point across to those willing to hear it or not. She opens her novel with this quote. This is the first few lines of the book. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act accordingly. I believe, this is Linda now, I believe that we truly are all connected and that we are one. And so we're conjuring up the spirit and the words and the love of Zora Neale Hurston today. And these ladies on the panel, Layla Cobo, author of The Second Time We Met, Bernice McFadden, author of Gathering of Waters, Jacqueline Luckett, author of Passing Love, and Reiko Rizzuto, author of Hiroshima in the Morning. Okay, folks, hold on tight, because here we go. <laughs> So, ladies, you're sitting writing, you're thinking about all these wonderful things to create this very book that you created. We talk a lot about women and community and how women are connected to community in a different kind of way, maybe, than men. How did the process start for each of you in the creation of the work that we're speaking about today? Do you want it in order? However you feel like doing it. <laughs> you start. <laughs> Go for it. Um, this is my second book, the second time we met. And no, the first one was not the first time we met. <laughs> Somebody asked me that the other day. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a story about, I, I call it a story about a clash of cultures and a clash of expectations, because it's the story of a young girl in Colombia. I'm from Colombia, South America. And uh, she's very young, she's very humble, she lives in a little town in the middle of nowhere. She gets pregnant and uh, she gives this child up for adoption and um, kind of redoes her life and this child is raised by an affluent family in the other side of the world, in California. And uh, very happy. Everything that she didn't get, he gets. And then after he's older, uh, he decides to go back and look for her and look for where he came from. And so the story is kind of this clash of it's kind of two trains coming together, and it's these two parallel lives that would never have otherwise encountered themselves were they not connected by DNA, really. It's, it's almost like an accidental connection at this point. And the book, I love to write about reinvention and about how people can change who they are and become something else. And that's how the book started. The book started as a story about Rita, and then the whole issue of adoption, which I am fascinated by, became something that helped push Rita along. Uh, but overwhelmingly, it's the story of Rita and, and how Rita, who is a, I love Rita because she's really, you know, she has guts. And, uh, and she's not the most likable person, but she really has, as she knows what she wants and she's going to make it happen. And it's a story about how Rita becomes someone else. And, um, and, and the whole book, 
I don't know, I had an idea because this time my publisher made me write an outline, which I never do. I don't know if you guys write outlines. But they said, you need to write at least one paragraph. And so I wrote one paragraph. <laughs> and then from that paragraph, though, the book just comes, it becomes its own. And the characters become their own. And they come alive in the page in ways that you never imagine. You know, And they do things that you never think they would do. And then they somehow connect. It all starts to connect. And you're writing it, at least when I'm writing it, and it all starts to connect, I'm like, Oh my God, this is so cool. This ties back to what I wrote. And I never planned it, but it just happens. So that's that's how I work. Anyway. Okay. See, now, now I'm so engaged in how you wrote your book that I've forgotten how I wrote my book. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, my book started on pen and paper. Um, and it was supposed to be a novel, and it turned into a memoir. And, and it was really... Um, I was chasing a story in my family. I, um, my, I'm half Japanese, and my Japanese American family were in the internment camps in, in World War II, and so I had been doing some some research into my family and, and what they had gone through. And I had talked to a great aunt of mine who um, had been in the camps, and she had. Um, been released from the camps and gone with the American occupation to Japan, and had been in Hiroshima after the bomb. And she'd been in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and she, she had become a peace activist because of the radiation and everything that she saw there. So um, I wanted her story, and by the time I got to her, she had forgotten her story. So I had to kind of go to Hiroshima to get it. So I was, I was going to create a novel out of that, um, that story. And when I got to Hiroshima, my life kind of took over. And one of the things that happened to me was I was doing a lot of research and um, interviewing the survivors of the bomb and thinking that here I was, I was looking for war. And, and after a couple of months of really having a difficult time trying to pull people's stories out of them, 9-11 um, happened. And so it, it changed everything about, about what, how they remembered their stories. Their stories broke open in these incredible ways. Um, and, and how I thought of myself, you, know, you talk about reinvention. It, this book that was going to be a novel became reinvented as a memoir about me reinventing myself. So <laughs> that's why I was listening so carefully to you. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. And what, what this book really started as was every night I would, I would go off and I would do my thing. I would be doing my interviews. And I would just be writing on pen and paper um, a diary of everything I did that day until I fell asleep. And I would stop in mid-sentence if I needed to, and I would never go back and clean it up or anything. The next day, I would just start again. And so I had all of this material when I went back to see, well, how did I get here? What, what happened to me? What, you know, how did I get to this place in my life? And there it was right there. So that's, that's where I started. Um, hello, everybody. This is my novel, Passing Love. So um, I've forgotten the question, but <laughs> I think that it has to do with how you got the idea. Um, one of the things that I did to prepare for sitting here with these um, three other wonderful authors was to read everybody's novel. And um, what I found that was actually a theme in each one of our novels in some way or the other was this reinvention. So my first novel was called Searching for Tina Turner, which was, I think, a really obvious story about a woman who reinvents herself to fit into a new lifestyle. 
And when it came to passing love, I wanted to focus on reinvention again. I wanted to write a love story, but I didn't want to write the conventional boy meets girl. So I started thinking about passing um, and all the ways that people pass in their lives. People pass black for white, white for black, um, gay for straight, straight for gay. Um, we pass up opportunities, particularly as women. And then I came upon the title Passing Love. And Passing Love is the story of two women, one in the present and the other in the jazz-fueled city of Paris in the uh, early 1950s and right after the war. So each woman goes to Paris looking for an answer and finds an answer but not the one that she expected. So I go back and forth, the book alternates between the two women who are seeking um, not as an obvious thought to reinvent or redo their lives but certainly have that in the back of their mind. Um, and the story takes place in Paris 100%, so I feel that it's a journey to get there. Part of my preparation was going to uh, Paris to really um, get some of the sensory details. What does Paris smell like? What does the air taste like? What do I see when I wake up in the day? And that's really part of my process. I, I really like to rely on all of those kinds of details. Um, then I just started writing. I knew I had these two characters, and I just started writing. And lo and behold, 300 pages later, I had a novel. Good afternoon. Um, my novels, my eighth novel, Gathering of Waters, and I guess it's being marketed as a book about Emmett Till, but for me, really, it's a book about love. Um, it's a book that asks the question, does love die? Is there an afterlife for love? And so I think the story began some years ago, probably back in 2007, with one line about Emmett Till. And I waited for a number of weeks for something else to come, and it never did. And then I figured, well, maybe this book is not about Emmett Till. And then I had all of these women start coming to me, three generations of women. And I started writing about them, and they were all very interesting. And it wasn't until I got to the final uh, chapter of the second section that I realized, oh, yes, Emmett Till is involved in this book. Um, why Emmett Till? I don't know. He died 10 years before I was born. But he was always very alive in my household because every year, every August, Jet Magazine would republish that photograph of him laying in the casket. And I wondered about him, and I wondered about the life he had before he died, because we just knew him as this little black boy that was murdered in Bunny, Mississippi. And I wanted to give him a different ending. And I think that's where Gathering of, Gathering of Waters came from. How good are you ladies in math? I could count to 10, because okay. I have 10 fingers. <laughs> so ponder this a minute. Let me know what you think. Love plus freedom equals what? Love minus freedom equals what? As you think, Layla, about Rita and Asher, and Reiko, you think about yourself, your family, your family from Japan, as they 
make their way through the United States. Jacqueline, as you think about Nicole and Ruby May with her fast self, <laughs> and talk about fast selves, <laughs> Bernice, oh, Miss Esther, and money, and doll. What does that equation mean? Jacqueline. <laughs> they over there adding I, and subtracting. I, yes, there. That's right. I'm like, I was never good at word pop problems in the sixth grade. So how can she give me this now? So love plus freedom equals, oh, okay, and love minus freedom equals. Actually, those are pretty good uh, descriptions of my two characters. So Nicole is a woman, um, I like to say, of a certain age, meaning that she's over 50. And um, she's experienced love, but not freedom. And that subtraction sent her to Paris. Um, we have Ruby, who is a fast, young 16-year-old, which doesn't mean a whole lot today. But back in the 1940s, to be uh, young and fast had a whole nother meaning to it. So she had love but no freedom either, but she put that plus sign into her equation to take herself to freedom. So um, love plus or minus can equal independence and maybe um, chasing a dream and taking a risk. Layla? I was going to say in my books, love and freedom very rarely go hand in hand. And uh, in this case, the only love with freedom, the only t absolute love with freedom that I see is the, the love of Asher's adopted parents for him and his love for them. Um, he really, you know, but their love for him is absolutely unconditional. They, they will do anything for him. They will support him even though his, his adopted mother, who is Linda, who's Jewish, will support him even though she's terrified. She doesn't want him to go looking for this mother. And then when the mother is finally identified, there's a scene where she realizes that she, the mother is 36 and Linda is a woman of a certain age. And she's like, how can I compete with this? Even though, I mean, they're not lovers, obviously, but she says, how can I compete? So the, the love and the freedom never go hand in hand. Uh, it, it doesn't happen for Rita when she falls in love. It's a completely taboo situation. Uh, her relationship with her child has to be hidden. It just does not happen. And the expectations of love from all these people are completely, I would say they're like almost behind shrouds and veils. They can't be realized. And, and what he expects of her is very different from what she expects. She doesn't expect anything from him. She doesn't want him, <laughs> you know, and he has a very different expectation. So no, the love and the freedom do not go hand in hand. Okay. So I would say love uh, minus freedom equals a story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, freedom's hard to find, I think. You know, I mean, I think I think that's one of the things that I found a lot in my personal experience, in my in my interviews and uh, my research. I'm. I mean, I was always looking at people who were not free. I, mean, I started my first book with my family when they were stripped of their citizenship and put into camps, you know. And I and I went to Japan and I was looking at people who were really trapped by their government and and destroyed by a bomb and um, and really looking at what happens to your life when um, 
when you don't have that freedom. And one of the things that happens, I think, is that um, it's very prescribed. You know, you kind of know what's going to happen. It's very inevitable. You don't have that that different ending that you were talking about. Um, and the one thing that I, I found in my personal um, story, which is which is long and involved, and I won't take a, a ton of time about it. But I mean, when I was in Japan, I was put into a place where I um, didn't have the usual boundaries that that we have in our society, where we're a we're a this or a that or the other thing. We're we're defined by the the things we do and the people we spend time with. And I got to rethink those definitions. So I had a lot of of freedom there. And and as a consequence, I. I made some different choices about my life, and it was really um, it was really a challenge to have those choices be different choices and still have the love. And so I made different choices, particularly about my family and the structure of my family. And yet, my family is defined by love. So um, it, it it was kind of a long road and through generations for me to get to love and freedom together. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess love plus freedom equals Emmett Till and Tass at the very end of my book, but strung throughout the uh, chapters, it's love minus freedom. Cole Payne, which is a white man living in Mississippi, falls in love with his best friend who is a young black girl named Sissy, and they are not free to have this this love in you know 1940s Mississippi, and it just and he falls in love again with another black woman, and it, he's not free to have that love with her because he's married, and still it's 19 you know early 50s Mississippi, I mean late 20s Mississippi. So it 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 love minus freedom, I think, in this particular story, is very prevalent. And I hope that I make up for that at the end when, when there's love and freedom which comes with death. Hmm. When you think about yourselves as a seven-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 25-year-old, on and on, and then Jacqueline, a woman of a certain age, <laughs> an expectation about who you were supposed to be, who you want to be, who you are, who you allow yourself to become. And you think about your writing career. How does all that intersect for you all? There are a lot of people sitting here who are writers, want to have their book published, mothers, they go to work, you know, women, not, nothing against the fellas, but we women, we work hard, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> I'm sure the men work hard too, but this is about the women today. So. Share with us, the younger, younger, older writer, how did that all get you sitting on the stage today? Someone else. I'll start, I'll start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My mother taught me to read when I was very young for very selfish reasons. I have a brother that's three years under me. My mother would come home from working very hard all day and she needed a nap before she started dinner. So she taught me how to read so that I could read to my brother while she napped. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, I just, I just became this really voracious reader. And um, in the apartment we lived in, in the, in the kids' room, we actually had a bookshelf. And it was my favorite 
It was my favorite place in my bedroom. Um, but when I got bored with those books, I went uh, rifling through my mother's dresser drawers and I found her books, Jackie Collins and Harold Robbins. <laughs> and I was, I was about eight years old. And I, you know, snuck and read those books. And uh, one day she came home from work and I had written my first short story, which was basically plagiarized. And I, you know, please read it, Mom. Please, please, please. She read it and, you know, she started out smiling. By the time she got to the middle, she was frowning <laughs> because I had, um, you know, written some very racy scenes and she wanted to know if I had had those experiences. <laughs> no. So I think, I think... Uh, I certainly knew then that I wanted to be a writer. She probably suspected it. Uh, however, being a black child, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, no bookstore, we always went to the library. And we had the bookmobiles. The bookmobiles used to come around. I don't know if they still do that. Um, I thought it was more of a fantasy on my part than a dream that I felt like I could actually achieve because there was no one that looked like me that was writing and making a living, no one that I was familiar with. And honestly, the first book that I read by a person of color was uh, The Color Purple by Alice Walker, and that was the year I graduated high school. Um, prior to that, I was reading a lot of Stephen King, just you know, a lot of horror. Um, when I went away to high school, I went to a boarding school, all white, Catholic. So I went from a uncensored household to a censored school. And so I really stopped reading for those four years. But when I got out and, and um, saw that this was the book that was making its rounds in my household and other households, that it was so important to my mother that she had read it three times that she was not a big reader. And so important that when the movie came out, my parents went to see it together. That was a big thing because they never did anything together. So this had such an impact on me that this woman of color had written this book and not only written a fabulous book, but won the Pulitzer Prize. It sparked something in me and I figured, okay, well, she could do it, I could certainly do it. And, and that's what has really brought me here today is chasing, chasing that idea and chasing that dream. Thank you. So um, I think the 13-year-old Jackie Luckett uh, was a storyteller. I was the oldest of all of my cousins. And um, in order to keep them quiet on Friday nights when our family would get together, I had to babysit. And what better way, I thought, to keep people occupied but by telling them a story, and especially a scary story. So that's what I did. We had um, a local newspaper. I'm from California. And um, we had a local newspaper, and I started writing um, little short stories and poems for them, won a few little prizes, got my picture in the paper. But I don't think I ever thought of myself as, as a writer, which, um, when I look back on that 13-year-old self, sort of saddens me. Um, because I guess as long as you get to your dream, it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there. So I say all that to say that I put that dream of writing aside. Like Bernice said, um, nobody in my family ever encouraged me to write, although I was at the library constantly. I don't ever remember buying a book. But isn't that funny? You just made me think of that. But we had so many books in my house. I don't remember ever seeing my mother read a book, but she bought us or acquired books for us all the time. Um, but So I kind of turned myself into a voracious reader instead of a writer. And I truthfully didn't start writing until I became a woman of a certain age. <laughs> 
And I had this um, desire to write. Do you ever feel like you have this sort of thing inside of you that's peaking and you know you kind of want to do it, so you start asking people questions? How do you start to write? How do you get a story published? And I would run into to people who weren't necessarily writers, but who were writing. And um, so I sort of challenged myself to take a writing class. And after a couple of challenges, I finally accepted that internalized dare. And that's when something just exploded inside of me. And it it said to me, this is what you're supposed to do. And so I started pursuing that um, dream of writing. And lo and behold, <coughs> many years later, I have, that was an intentional cough. <laughs> I have two, not one novel, but two, and the idea for a third one inside my head. Um, so that's, that's how I got to this place, a very circuitous route. Um, it took me a long time to understand that writing was a priority. Mm -hmm. um, my parents were actually both writers. My mother wrote cookbooks and books about Hawaiian pathfinders, and my father wrote about fishing, and he wrote about um, calculus. And, and so I just always wrote, I wrote bad poetry by the waterfall, you know, just, it was, it was this thing that you did. And when I went out into the world to, to say, okay, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to major in something, what I'm going to major in, uh, English seemed like something I already knew, and so I majored in astrophysics. <laughs> so that was like that was like the real world. That's kind of the man's world thing, you know. This is where you're going to make a living, and um, and I got to a point in my career I did not I I I, I dropped astrophysics pretty quickly after I got my degree, um, but I um, I got to a place where. I finally found a story, which was my family story. And before then, I thought, well, I could always write. Of course, I could write, but I have nothing to write about. Um, and even after I published that book, and, and it did pretty well, and it made money, which, of course, is the criteria to know whether something is real or not, and mm -hmm. at least it was in our family, um, and, and got awards and everything, it's still it was still the thing that I did, and then that meant I could also clean the house, and I could also make the dinner, and et cetera, et cetera, when my husband was out you know, working. Um, and so then I got this grant to go to Japan, and, uh, and I, I was going to be paid a fair amount of money to live there for six months, and I got to, to do this research on a book. And we both sat there, and we said, great, this is really going to work, um, and I'm going to have this really wonderful opportunity. And I went to be a writer, first time in my life that I really took that um, that stand, and um, among many other things, my marriage totally fell apart. And then, and then the family, you know, broke up, and 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 I had to piece that back together. And in 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 that period of time, I had many opportunities to say, okay, I'll give it up. Okay, I'll come home. Okay, I'll be what you want me to be. Okay, I won't do this thing. Um, and so that was really that writing really. Uh, I had to I had to choose my book and therefore myself or this thing that I used to be um, and and I was sort of given this kind of this false choice that it was only those two things it couldn't be um, yet a third thing that I created that had my book and myself and and part of my family and my children and all these things in it um, which is what I eventually had to do but um, so so yeah it, it was really when I was almost of a certain age, that I really um, made writing a priority. 
I have to say I love this question because it's never been asked of me this way. <clears throat> and it's the first time that I've made this analysis. I think for me it comes like for probably everyone here from just a tremendous love of reading. I love to read like everybody. And uh, like I said, I grew up in Colombia. I'm born and raised there. But I went to an American school, and it had a great library, I have to say. And it has an even better library now. And so I read in English all the time. And, um, and the books in English, uh, this is going to sound like heresy of any, anybody who speaks, who's Latin hears me, but they were just better when you're little. I mean, there were no, there were no young adult books in Spanish. There, they weren't. There were no kiddie books in Spanish. So I read everything in English. And of course, um, in Cali, Colombia, I'm from Cali. There was no bookstore that, I mean, the bookstore, it was a great bookstore, but it sold very few books in English. So every time I would go to Bogota in the summer, there was a little bookstore called El Buo, and my aunt would drop me off at 10 in the morning and then pick me up, like at 1 in the afternoon, and I would, it was only in English. It was, ah, it was like the dream come true. <laughs> but, um, but I never thought that I would be a novelist, I have to say. I played the piano, and I always vacillated between what am I going to study, music or journalism. It never occurred to me that you could be a novelist. Never. And I think it's part because there were no role models. No one was a novelist. I mean, there were a lot of writers, and people wrote in the paper, but a novelist, no one was a novelist. And uh, so I, I always thought, OK, I, since I read so much, and I'm so good in English, then I'm going to be a writer of some sort. And I balanced these two things, the, the, the piano, I'm a pianist. I ended up studying piano at Manhattan School of Music and being a journalist. And this went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I ended up um, working as a journalist in the LA Times. Um, I was just married. And I remember I made friends with a great writer called Mike Rikorian, who I hope to see next week in my book signing in LA. And at one point, he walked by my desk and he said, so are you writing a book? And I'm like, no, like, should I be writing a book? He's like, of course you have to be writing a book. Let's write a book. I want to write a book. You have to write a book. And so we started, okay, we'll both write a book. And it's amazing. It had never occurred to me before that I could write a book. And, and then I thought, well, I'm going to write fiction because I love fiction. That's really what I love to do. And I started to write my first book. And it took me a decade <laughs> to finish. But I finished it, and now I'm in the... And the second one, and if I could just go back to something that you were saying, Joy, about the public library, because in Colombia, uh, the concept, I think that the public library is one of these American concepts that I find astounding. I mean, in the rest of the world, this doesn't exist. I don't know if you guys realize this. Here, every town has a public library, and to me, the whole concept of being able to walk into a place and borrowing a book, and they let you take it out, <laughs> is, is an amazing thing. I mean, this is something that I think we take for granted here and doesn't exist in other countries. And, uh, and in this book, there is a moment, one of the transformative moments for Rita is she's in Bogota, and she goes, there is a great public library in Bogota called Biblioteca Luis Angel Arango, and it's when she walks in there and she realizes, oh my god, it's a library, and the librarian teaches her how to use the, the card system. And then the librarian says, well, you can check out a book. And Rita is like, how can I? Yeah, like, the concept doesn't factor in into her mind. And the library is one of the big uh, forces that changes her life. 
um, this public library and this scene and, and how she understands that there is a system that has faith in her and that allows someone like her, someone who has nothing, who has no money, who has no family, who has no address, but she can go and check out a book and that opens the world for her. Well, uh, a couple of the ladies on the panel, I won't say their name, instructed me to not instruct them to read from their books. <laughs> so I devised a, a mathematical equation for everyone to read a little something. So it's the 101st year of the International Women's History Month. And it's the 75th anniversary of Zora Neale Hurston's book, Their Eyes Were Watching God. So we're going to add 101 plus 75. Turn to that page, please, in your books <laughs> and read them. And if, for those of you who, who doesn't add as quickly as I do, it's page 176. Oh, my gosh. Were you a math major? No. <laughs> what, what's, I've never talked to you about numbers before. Never, but they are popping up left and right they today. Are. How much do you want us to read? How about yeah. if we don't like that page? I don't care. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't yeah. ask you to like the page. All right. The, Just read. You never know. It's, okay. it's, not, huh? it's not a good thing. I protest. Okay. <laughs> All right. I okay, my that. page got better. Well, <laughs> the reason is because my book sort of has a secret to it. Oh, is that uh, the secret yeah. page? Okay. And, and, and it Just is. Why? And, and go to the next page. Oh. <laughs> Wait, okay, now, why, look, this is what happens okay. when writers, they, they get all crazy. They, their books are like, oh my God, I can't read that page. You two will be like that. Okay, so Rako loves her page 176, so she's going to go with it. Bernie's, pick a page or two. Fabulous. Uh, Jacqueline, pick a page or two. Layla, do you like it now? I like it. Okay. So, Rako, you start first since you gave me no problems. I gave you no problems, and I was the one. I said, do not make me read something that I don't, I'm not prepared for. Um, is like a page, page and a half? Two pages. Well, this is it, so two pages is a page and a half. Okay, you got it. All right. Um, just jumping right in the middle. Although I would never admit to ignoring anything, I am the grand suppressor. An emotion rises, pokes up its crown, and before I can see its face, before the eyes can tell me I am hurt that he won't come, that he makes fun of my fears and has never once tried to find something in Japan he might love in the extensive time he could have given himself here and chose not to, before the lips can say that I've changed without intention and do not want to be sucked back into my old life before I can understand what my new self looks like, I push it back down. I've never been strong enough to reject a direct request, especially from my husband. And if I have gained that strength in his absence, if I have my own stake in his denial, neither one of us is prepared to know. Don't go to the World Series, I beg him. Something could happen there. He has tickets. I stay in Japan. I want to be in the company of the Hibaksha, who are the atomic bomb survivors, because they have seen the worst and will recognize the end when it is coming while the rest of the world watches, as dumb and disbelieving as we were the first time. I don't know why this is so important to me exactly, except that the clock can't be turned back, nor can it go forward, nor can I find any reason for it to stop here, any reason for any of us to have suffered so much to get to this place, to find myself in a place of no larger purpose, where people die just because this is my nightmare. And to arrive there without warning, without any way to measure how much more time there is before the worst begins and how long it will be before it will finally be over. It is my sense that the world is ending 
and I can't bear to think it will end amid ignorance and indifference. I want not just a witness, but a witness who knows. I'm doing too many interviews to prepare for, often more than one each day. I'm talking almost compulsively about how I don't agree with Bush's rhetoric, about how Americans couldn't possibly approve in record numbers the polls they are suggesting. Is there relief in their eyes? Is it my imagination, or have they become more emotional? Their faces look different since the terrorist attacks. There seems to be more anger, more threatened tears, more connection to family, mothers lost, children lost, fathers. Something is breaking open in the Habaksha, and everyone needs to know what's inside. Thank you. Layla. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> the other day someone told me that I could actually read and edit as I wrote so that it wouldn't be so long. That was that, me. That was you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, this is like a whole dialogue scene, which isn't usually what I read, and so I have to explain it. Um, Asher, his name is Asher. His name is Sebastian, is the name his mother gives him. And then when he's adopted by this Jewish family, they call him Asher Sebastian Stone. And so at this point, he's gone back to Colombia. And back when he was adopted, uh, adoptions weren't as regulated. They're very regulated now in Colombia. But, but back then, it was mostly done through the Catholic Church. And they find the nun who was running the orphanage. And the nun by now is very old. And uh, she's no longer running the orphanage. Uh, she's retired. Well, she's living in a convent. But, uh, but, but they find the nun. And Asher is there with his girlfriend, and her name is Alessandra. And the nun is called Sister Teresa. Um, and Asher has never met a nun in his life. So, Sister Teresa, this is Asher Stone, says Carla. Carla is the director of the orphanage today. As Asher belatedly extends his hand toward the nun, Ache, she replies, puzzled, with a shaky voice that contradicts the firmness of her handshake. Asher, he says slowly. Ache, like H in Spanish, says, no, I'm sorry, Asher, he says slowly. Ache, like H in Spanish, says Sister Teresa. No, no, Asher, like shh, he says, moving a finger to his lips as if warning the nun to quiet down. Not quite the introduction he'd imagined. Such a strange name, says Sister Teresa questioningly, looking at Carla for help. Sister, you can call him by his Christian name, Sebastian, Sebastian, says Carla, cutting to the point. Ah, Sister Teresa's countenance changes visibly. Sebastian, much better, she adds as she sits down carefully on a worn olive armchair and looks up at Sebastian, her cocked head giving her the appearance of a brown sparrow. So you are one of my babies, she continues in Spanish. Yes, answers Asher slowly, unsure how long his Spanish will hold out. He shoots a pleading look at Carla, who nods reassuringly and takes over. Sister Teresa, Sebastian is looking for his birth mother. He's come all the way from Los Angeles in California because there is no record of her. He wanted to see you and talk with you and ask if perhaps you remembered anything about her that could help him. Sister Teresa continues to look at Asher appraisingly. Sebastian, she says. What a beautiful name that is. Are you also one of my babies, she asks, turning towards Alessandra. No, sister. I'm a friend of Ash, of Sebastian's, Alessandra replies, the name catching on her tongue. Sister Teresa peers at her closely, her face expressionless, then turns to Asher again. Sebastian, she repeats, placing the accent on the last A instead of the second A, as they do in Spanish. 
and Asher realizes he's never heard his name pronounced like that before. Are you happy, Sebastian? asked Sister Teresa. Are you close to your parents? Very much, Sister, he answers earnestly. Then what are we doing here? Sister Teresa asked bluntly. Bah, she silences him with a wave of her hand before he can even muster a protest. You are all looking for something, someone, and then it's never what you expected. Hmm. So uh, because I'm a fiction writer, I have invented new math based on untruths. Um, so I'm, I'm reading from chapter one. <laughs> And then 75 minus 101 is page 13, which is half of 26. <laughs> okay, so what I would like to do is introduce you to the two characters in my book. Um, so first I'm going to tell you a little bit about Nicole. Remember, that's our present-day character. And then I'm going to tell you just or introduce you briefly to uh, Ruby, who's our character who lives in uh, 1944. She'd waited all her life to go to Paris. As for the reasons why the dream of speaking French in France, of standing beneath the Eiffel Tower at the stroke of midnight, of lingering in sidewalk cafes took so long to come about, she chose to evade not explain them. Her greatest fear, the one she carried like a locket close to her heart, was that in taking too close a look at the days that composed her 56 years, the dam that confined her existence might break and release a river of regret for all the places she'd never visited, the books she'd never read, the things she'd never done. With the given name of Nicole Marie Roxanne, she believed Choice was, the choice was not her own. Bowlegs, a widow's peak, and French, her inescapable and defining particulars. People asked if she was from Louisiana. Teachers inquired how she, a Negro girl, they said, could have not one, but three French names. Her neighbor to the left of their stucco bungalow, who never let anyone forget her Louisiana roots, Mrs. Albert, no, Albert, no hard tea, chérie, spoke Creole French whenever she wanted Nicole to walk her miniature poodle or inform gentlemen callers that she was otherwise occupied. Merci. Her father, clicking through false pearly whites, used his military French to teach his daughter basic phrases when he wasn't absorbed in one of his beloved books. Comment allez-vous, Mademoiselle Handy? A greeting so formal for a little girl. Comprenez-vous, Nicole? Nicole, never Nikki, not from her father. Oui, oui. <laughs> <clears throat> now let's uh, put ourselves into Mississippi in the spring of 1944. Martha told Ruby May at least twice yearly that the day she was born, the afternoon sun had carried a red hue over its round self, as if Jesus' blood had dripped onto the brightest star to welcome her newborn babe. To Ruby May, that peculiarity of red sun meant she was born to be exceptional. It augured a fate to live and die beyond Sheridan, Mississippi, where her parents were born and bound to die, where her grands and great-grands and the greats of greats, ancestors, the slaves she had come from, lay in the red dirt, still waiting for Jesus' hand to lead them to freedom. 
She was one of those women born under the sign of dissatisfaction. Nothing mother, father, or friend did brought her happiness. When she reached 13, she complained of a burning deep within. She came to call it longing. Her mother called it restlessness. Now and then, Ruby May swore it kept her fingers from pushing buttons through hand-stitch holes on starch white blouses, somber skirts and dresses full on high to her neck that her mother Martha made her wear. The impulse pushed nigh on to a living creature, and on hot nights she squeezed it, rocked herself quiet with its ache. It pushed her not to call when she was summoned and to run wild into the streets where the neighbors whispered behind their hands. The longing kept her in front of the mirror where she stared at her face, tugged at her skin, ran her fingers through her hair, and pondered how it must be to stand at the head of a line to be addressed by voices filled with respect, not lust, to be white, lady, not gal. And then later, after the first blood stained her panties, she pondered the feeling of a man's lips on her own. Um, I'm going to read chapter one. What page number is that, please? <laughs> page one. <laughs> um, usually, my novels in my head are narrated by females. I feel that energy. When I was writing um, Gathering of Waters, the energy was different. And I struggled with the voice for a very long time. And then I thought, well, maybe it's a male voice. And, and I continued to write, and it still didn't ring authentic. And so what happens with me is when I am confused about something that I'm working on and I'm tired of struggling with it, I just verbally ask. And that's what I did. And the response was, I am money, money, Mississippi. And so the town is narrating the story. I am money, money, Mississippi. I have had many selves and have been many things. My beginning was not a conception but the result of a growing, stretching, and expanding, which took place over thousands of years. I have been figments of imaginations, shadows and sudden movements seen out of the corner of your eye. I have been dewdrops, falling stars, silence, flowers, and snails. For a time I lived as a beating heart. Another life found me swimming upstream toward a home nestled in my memory. Once I was a language that died, I have been sunlight, snowdrifts, and sweet baby's breath. But today, however, for you and this story, I am money, money Mississippi. I do not know for whom or what I was named. Perhaps I was christened for a farmer's beloved mule or a child's favorite pet. I suspect, though, that my name was derived from a dream deferred because as a town, I have been impoverished for most of my existence. You know, before white men came with their smiles, Bibles, guns, and disease. This place that I am was inhabited by native men, Choctaw Indians. It was the Choctaw who gave the state its name, Mississippi, which means many gathering of waters. The white men fancied the name, but not the Indians, and so slaughtered them and replaced them with Africans, who, as you know, were turned into slaves 
to drive the white men's ego, whim, and industry. But what you may not know, and what the colonists, genociders, and slave owners certainly did not know is this. Both the native man and the African believed in animism, which is the idea that souls inhabit all objects, living things, and even phenomena. When objects are destroyed and bodies perish, the souls flit off in search of a new home. Some souls bring along memories, baggage, if you will, that they are unwilling or unable to relieve themselves of. Oftentimes, these memories manifest in humans as deja vu. Other times, and in many other life forms and so-called inanimate objects, these displays have been labeled as curious, bizarre, absurd, and deadly. You may have read in the news about the feline having all of the characteristics of a dog, the primate who walked upright from the day he was born until the day he died, of men trapped in female hosts and vice versa, the woman who woke one morning to find that she had grown a tail, the baby boy who emerged from his mother's womb, flanked not in skin, but scales, the man who grew to the towering heights of a tree, rivers overflowing their banks, monster waves wiping away whole cities, twisters gobbling up entire neighborhoods, relentlessly falling snow, blanketing towns like volcano ash. These are all memories of previous existences. Listen. If you choose to believe nothing else that transpires here, believe this. Your body does not have a soul. Your soul has a body, and souls never, ever die. To my memory, I have never been human, which probably explains my fascination with your kind. Admittedly, I am guilty of a very long and desperate infatuation with the family that I followed for decades. In hindsight, I believe that I was drawn to the beautifully tragic heartbrokenness of their lives, and so for years remained with them, helplessly tethered like a mare to a post. Their story begins not with the tragedy of 55, but long before that, with the arrival of the first problem, which came draped in crinoline and silk, carrying a pink parasol in one hand and a Bible in the other. You know, lis listening to all of the readings, and uh, thank you, Layla and Rekha, who was resisting a little bit <laughs> beforehand. It was beautiful. Um, how much research goes into creating the work that you bring forth for us? Um, in my case, we're talking about this particular book, right? Mm -hmm. I did have to research about uh, the whole world of adoption, and uh, I have a good friend who runs an adoption agent, agency in Cali. And the adoption, the book is not set in Cali. Cali is ca uh, Colombia's third largest city. It's a very chaotic place. And uh, that's where my first book is set. And this one, I didn't want to repeat myself. So it's set in Bogota, which is better because it's a very cold place. So it's very apropos for everything that goes on. And uh, but anyway, um, Agatha has an orphan, runs an orphanage called Chiquitines. And I spoke to her a lot about the adoption process because I needed to get that right. Um, I didn't want to write something that couldn't be feasible. So that process I did discuss with her and um, also the parts that are that need to be very, you know, 
based in fact, like Asher's accident and, and his recovery, that I also um, research. But aside from that, and I did speak with a lot of adopted children and adopted parents, but there comes a point where I stop it because the book is the book. The book is its own story. It's its own force. And it's not someone else's story. I mean, it's it's a story that comes, like I said before, it comes alive here. And I'm not, uh, it's not a memoir. It's not a journalistic piece. It's a work of fiction. And uh, it needs to come from here and not from someone else. So even though I do use other people's experiences, things I hear, I love to hear stories and I incorporate them. There comes a point where I say, stop, now I have what I need, and now it's going to write. It's going to come alive. So uh, for the sake of my readers, I told you this is my second book, I forced myself to spend a month in Paris um, <laughs> doing the very difficult uh, work of researching and making sure things were authentic. She's shaking her hair back, back there like, what is this woman talking about? So I did actually do a lot of research because the period of time that I'm discussing or that I'm telling about Ruby's story, remember, happens in the late 1940s and just after um, World War II. So that's when a lot of African Americans went to Paris seeking um, freedom from Jim Crow. And so there was a certain feel, I believe, to Paris that I wanted to infuse in the book. So I needed to do things like um, find out what the streets were like, what the weather was like, what kind of food was served in a post-war place, um, and then what the jazz scene was like. I discovered so much about the history of jazz in France and how the French sort of took it and made some of it their own. And then there are references to different places. Um, there was a soul food restaurant in France in the early 50s called Haynes Restaurant. So, and a, a restaurant and nightclub owned by a woman named Inez. So I took some of these facts and put them into the novel um, so that the, the places are all real. Most of the people are not, but when it's, it's a truth, it's stated as a truth. Um, I have been to Mississippi a few times on book tour, so just Oxford and Jackson. I've never been to Money, Mississippi. Hopefully I'll get there this year. Um, I did a lot of research over the years, just watching documentaries about the Emmett Till trial. Um, obviously, to authenticate a place, I'll go online and make sure that I get the trees right and the types of food. and. But otherwise, um, I like you, Layla, it's, at some point you have to stop because then, for me, it would not be my story. Um, because it is fiction, because I want to depend on my imagination, I pull away, I pull away from the research. But I did want to get the historical facts correct. And so for that, documentaries, internet, and lots of, lots of reading. I did a ton of research for, for three books, actually. My first book was a novel um, about the Japanese-American internment, my second memoir about Hiroshima, and then my third novel, which is not out yet, um, 
is about the Hiroshima survivor and uh, this town in Hawaii where a tsunami came and wiped out the town in 1960. So in, in each of these cases, I'm really drawn to um, a topic that has a lot of silence surrounding it, that, that, that it's not something that a lot of people know about. And so for that reason, I really, really have to get the facts right. Um, and and like like others here, I I have to really go in and get the facts right. I have to get the tactile details and stuff. And then you then you have to let it go and and get the heart of it. But one of the interesting things that that I found with my research, because so much of it wasn't written down and and so much of it was historical, it was a place and a time I couldn't go to. So I had to rely on what people told me. And the interesting thing is that if I if I use that their testimony as fact, I have a mess because all of their testimonies are different. And so what I actually find that I am using as, as my research is, um, is, is the personal story, is the memory. And the memory rewrites the story and what everything looks like depending on where you stand at that moment when the tsunami comes in and who you think you were and what happened in your family and whether you were the survivor or whether you lost someone. Um, it's kind of like uh, looking at these pieces of a puzzle, but, but the puzzle never actually comes together to one single sort of identifiable factual um, landscape. So I have to kind of take the heart of what these people are telling me, try to figure out what they're telling me, and, and write from, from that, really. Mm -hmm. Who were some of your favorite authors over the years? Um, Toni Morrison. Well, like I said in the beginning, I started out a big Stephen King fan. And I, I always look at my favorite authors as my teachers as well. They didn't know that. But I learned, I think, to tell a story and to tell a story well from Stephen King. And then when I discovered um, the African-American um, female author, that it just blew me away. So Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, J. California Cooper, Rita Dove, Nikki Giovanni. Um, and, and still today, you know, I just, I read a variety of different authors and, and I won't say that, you know, maybe the most recent people I've come across, authors I've come across, I won't say that they're my favorites, but they might have a book that they've written that has become my favorite book. Mm -hmm. um, ditto to what Bernice has said, um, because <laughs> there's, when you write, you need to read as well. And I always say to people that you need to read what is well-written and what is not well-written so that you will understand the difference. And so um, I will read almost anything, but I do really love Toni, Toni Morrison so much for the imagery that she has. And your work really reminded me of hers um, in the way you have the city narrating um, uh, the the story. So um, Diane McKinney Whetstone is a wonderful writer. Um, just there's so many out there uh, that I just can't say. But I try to stick to women of color, and that's expanded as I come across just women writers, which is the second person type of writer that I like to stick to because I want to hear how women are telling our stories. I I I read. 
everything really and I teach and and one of the things that my my uh, the students that where I teach at Goddard have to do is they have to read 45 books and write papers on them in two years so I get to kind of vicariously absorb some of their books too which is really cool because then I can talk semi-knowledgeably about them <laughs> if you you know 30 seconds we could talk about that book um, and it's more books I love than writers Toni Morrison is amazing I love wordsmiths like Michael Ondaatje. Mm -hmm. But my first books that I loved when I grew up in, in that period of time when we were all going to the library reading was science fiction. And I loved Robert Heinlein and, and Ray Bradbury. Of course, it's, it was mostly all white men at that time. But the idea that you could escape this world and escape the planet and, and, um, and that you could like meld telepathically with that guy that you know, were thinking of. You know. But the thing was, it was all, it was, it was plot, it was passion, it was, it was speed. And I, I find that I can sometimes get too wrapped up in the language now, and I have to kind of go back to that, you know, Stephen King. You know, I'm reading Stephen King right now on writing. It's one of the, it's a great fun book. So. Well, since everybody's being so honest here about what they used to read, I love to read romance novels. I was always reading Harlequin romances. <laughs> And isn't it great that my editor used to work at Harlequin, so it was meant to be. <laughs> but uh, my writing is nothing like that. Um, the writing that I love the most and that I uh, that I think has shaped my writing, and I'm not trying to compare myself to them, obviously, is American writing of the early of the early 20th century. I love Hemingway, and I love Carson McCullers, and I love. The writers of the South, I love. I love the way they describe the place, and it's always heavy and humid and tragic. And good, good things are not going to happen there. And <laughs> I, I just love that literature. And and I love Garcia Marquez, you know, mm -hmm. from from Colombia, who I think is very similar. And he often says that. He says that those are his influences. And again, I'm not comparing myself to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but. I do like that, you know, the heavy atmosphere, and and it's inevitably tragic, and it doesn't end well. It doesn't end terribly always, but there's like this inevitability of fate. Is and uh, and yeah, I do think it begins with um, even though it's not what I read for recreation, but I think I've read all the American short stories that have been written. I if I haven't read them, I own those books. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last question before I open up the floor to our wonderful audience. Here we go back to the math, y'all. Five <laughs> words. Tell me what the second time we met is. Hiroshima in the morning, passing love, gathering of water. Yeah, you thought you were just going to sit here on the throne. Five words. You're wordsmiths. Just five words. Just Five words. Not five sentences. No. Okay. Well, let's do some geometry since she's into math. Let's make it our own. Um, why do I always get to start? Because you grabbed the mic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, because I two words came up immediately. I would say love, loss. But you know, I think our Sam Marcus that's all. Made up. Okay. Love. Loss, differences, uh, disappointment. 
and expectations. Fabulous. Can repeat, repeat that? Love, loss, difference, disappointment, and expectations. Thank you. Fabulous. Um, memory, motherhood, war, stories, and family. Nice. Thank you. I wrote them all down. The last one is family. Two women, secrets, betrayal, Paris. Um, love, memory, spirit, water, afterlife. Thank you very much. You guys are fabulous. We are opening the floor to questions, and the mic is right here. I know you guys have questions, so run over. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we can, we can hear, everybody can hear. Here's your chance. Published authors, they know a lot about the industry. Ask away. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to reading your new novel as well as the others here. Um, I'm dying to get your autograph as well. Um, I want to ask you um, about your process in writing the novel. I know you talked about it a little before, but just from start to finish, um, what it's like for you to imagine, you know, these people who are real and also spiritual, in a sense? Um. Well, you know, for me, a story, a story starts in my mind many years before I sit down and put it down on paper. So even as I was finishing up Glorious, I was already hearing, you know, a refrain in my head that would end up in Gathering of Waters. It's um, my process, obviously being a writer, it's a very solitary lifestyle. A lot of my friends and family, even though I've been doing this for 12, 13 years, they still don't get it. That even if I'm not sitting at the computer, I am working. Even if the television is on, I'm working because it's in here and just need time for it to simmer. Um, I listen very closely. I say that it's, for me, it's about being obedient. I don't always want to do it. But I realized I had to come to terms with why I was put here. We all have a purpose, and I know what mine is, absolutely. And so I have to let go of things that are happening outside of my home, outside of my life, and commit myself to what these characters uh, have are bringing to me. So my process is I have to clean up the entire house. Everything has to be in its place. Otherwise, it will be distracting. I'll look around and go, that needs to be clean. That needs to be moved. Mm -hmm. Anything to keep from sitting down to start, to put down that first sentence. But once I surrender myself, it just comes. Okay. And is sugar going to come back? I've read um, a lot of your, your writing, and I just loved sugar and the story. Um, so is, is she going to come back? Um, 
not I, I'm not feeling anything from right now, but I will say that keep your fingers crossed that Kimberly Elise optioned stage and film rights, so maybe you'll see her on the big screen. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming to Baltimore and giving us this wonderful treat today. Miss um, McFadden, you're one of my favorite authors. Thank I just you. want to say that. Um, I do have a question, and anyone can answer the question. I recently read an interview uh, with Michelle Obama where she was talking about um, to young kids about what it is to be successful, and she said to read, 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 but also to write, 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 and don't get frustrated when uh, you have to rewrite. And as a young journalist, when I came out of college, I used to get so flustered about because my pages would come back and read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to humble myself to, to learn. So I'm curious about the rewriting process and how many edits do you actually really go through before um, the book comes to fruition? It, it depends on the book. Um, Sugar, I have three, three copies at home. And... It's difficult, I don't know about you guys, but I hate rewrites, but I appreciate having to do it because when I look at the first draft of Sugar mm -hmm. and I look at the published draft of Sugar, thank God, <laughs> <laughs> thank God for rewrites. But yes, it is a humbling experience, but um, it, I feel it will always make it better. And even, as, uh, even though I've published all these novels, I can go back and read through and still see where things need to be uh, changed or edited. But that's why you have to have someone, your editor, whoever, to pull you away, because you could work on it for the rest of your life. Yeah. I, I actually heard Toni Morrison say that same thing. And she said that <clears throat> sometimes when she reads from her work, that she actually edits as she goes along, after the book is already published. So. Um, when I first started writing, I went to this wonderful writing um, workshop in San Francisco called Voices of Our Nations, um, which has some fabulous authors, Cristina Garcia, Dan Zicena, Juno Diaz, um, among um, many of them. So the first day I walked into Cristina Garcia's class, she started talking about rewriting. Now, just in the course of my life, Nearly everything I've written, I would just keep rewriting, but I just thought that was me being a finicky person. So um, Christina started talking about the fact that uh, revision is part of her process, and my mouth dropped open, and I said to her, you mean you rewrite? And she looked at me and just kind of laughed hysterically. <laughs> so um, revision and rewrite, at least for me, is an important part of the process. And I actually happen to like it because when I first start off writing, I know what the story is, sort of. I know how it's going to begin and how it's going to end. And so I just kind of write something to get to the end. And then in that whole revision process, that's when I can strengthen for story and plot and character and all the other things. The You asked how many edits, uh, you know. I, I used to lie for my first book and say, oh, I only did 11 rewrites. <laughs> and then this on this one, I started doing 1.1, 1.2, 2.1, and so on. And now I don't really care how many, 1350, as, as long as the book comes out to be something that I want and that I feel represents the idea that and the story that I'm trying to put forward. Can I just add something? Uh, you say you're a journalist. I'm a journalist too, so being edited is part of being a journalist. And I have to say that there are very good editors and there are very bad editors. 
And so in journalism, if you're writing a 500-word story and you get a terrible editor um, who doesn't respect your voice, you can live with it. It's a 500-word story. You need to pick your battles. But when it's your book, um, I do think you have to... Um, you need to work with somebody who thinks like you or who makes your voice better. Um, and I guess we are fortunate because or else we probably wouldn't be sitting here, but that is so important to, to find the person who makes your voice better and who doesn't try to make it their voice. Thank you so much. Rico, want to answer that? Um, well, I can, I can add one more thing to that because I'm also a teacher. And so I sp I've spent the last nine years working with students, um, trying to convince them that the first draft is really the discovery draft. And you get all the way to the end, and it really isn't until you get there that you really know what the story is about. And there's so many clues that you give yourself along the way, so many scenes that pop out of nowhere. And you just give yourself that space to play. That's how you help, to, you, you figure out how you're going to do all of this shaping. And um, for me, the other thing that I've found that is, is key that you can only really find in the revision process is when you're shaping the book, if you're writing fiction, a lot of times I'll, I'll see scenes that really need to explode and need to be built up. And if you're writing memoir, which is, which is the struggle that I had with this book, because I went through many, many different drafts, it's about cutting away. So my first draft with this book was everything that had happened to me in Japan for six months, and I can tell you how deadly boring it was. I mean, it was just like being in the corner of the room in that cocktail party where, you know, you're stuck and the person wants to tell you his whole life, and you just got to cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. And so it's the exciting part. You know, if you think of yourself as an artist, it's like it's like where you've really got that statue up and you're, you're really fixing things. So, you know, if it's, if it's creative work, I think you have to look at that as the fun part. Hi, ladies. I'm glad you brought that point up about the editor, editor, someone helping you with the book um, and keeping your idea. Um, what I have two questions. What um, what information you would give to upcoming writers, like first writers? Anyone? <laughs> What kind of information do you want? As far as like trying to find an editor or um, just getting your book published. So do you have a book that, that, you, that you have a full draft of now? Are you still working on ideas? Where are you with that? I'm writing my first novel. in the process of writing my first novel. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering the process. Do you have a, um, a, a group of people, like a, a writing group that you're working with? Has anybody seen it? No. That's one thing that's really helpful is to is to see if you can find some some friends or or a group of people who will share their work a little to bounce it off of some people some some other people to get an idea of what other people are thinking, mm -hmm. um, because you want to have it as good as you possibly can even before you go to agents and editors these days. That's it's a kind of a crazy yeah. world and a lot of people won't look at it unless they think that. It's, it's really smooth and published. So you've got a lot of time um, to, to work it and work it over and do, do several drafts. But once you have a draft, the first step is to go to an agent uh, if you can, and then they'll take it to an editor. And one of the best ways to find an agent is to find books that you love 
to find books that are like yours and to look in the acknowledgments page or do a little bit of research to find out who's the agent for that book. Because if they, that's how I found my agent. My, my first novel was a, a historical book that was written in four voices and I found Julia Alvarez's In the Time of the Butterflies, which was historical, four voices, and I wrote to her agent and said, if you like this book, you'll like mine, and, it, and she did. So um, there's, that would be the, the first way to get to, to an agent to get your book out there. But if you can find, maybe um, sometimes libraries have writing groups and com communities of writers that you can uh, bounce ideas off of and show some of your chapters. I think um, you probably learn a lot uh, from both hearing what they have to say about your stuff, and also thinking about what you have to say about their stuff, because they'll share their stuff too, and you'll learn a lot about how you read and how you can edit their stuff, which will help you edit your own. Because okay. I've heard a lot of people comment on, as far as the editing process, and how editors want to add, like your story is more uh, doctor, uh, uh, what you said, a, a memoir. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And how, like you said, your first draft, mm -hmm. and then you said the editors came in. Did y'all find it challenging to, they want to put in more things that might be more characteristic than what you're aiming for, or mm -hmm. what is well, keeping your, your the, agenda? What's the name, what's the uh, sister uh, from Texas who sings? Uh, then, uh, I can't think of it, but anyway, what she said was, as an artist, you're going to be sensitive about your ish, period. That's it. Erica Badu, thank you. So you have a child. You send your child off to school. You send your child out into the world. And then you get a call from a teacher saying, well, she's not doing this right, and she's not doing that right, or he or she. It bothers you. It's going to be the same thing with your with your book. But you have to learn to take constructive criticism and know when the criticism is, is to your benefit. So it's going to be a pull and tug, but as time goes on, you get used to it. Well, I think it's important to remember what your intention is, because I know that I've had um, stories that I've shown to people, and I've gotten some pretty harsh criticism, but they're trying to help me do what I want to do, and so I can hear that. But there's sometimes when people want me to write something else. You know, It's like I was writing a book about Hiroshima, and somebody said, well, you should write a book about how you left your kids. I said, but I didn't leave my kids. You know, It's like, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. But um, well, at least I thought it was. But, but the point is that there are sometimes people they they want you to write what they want to read, and then you just know that that's not that's not what you what you need to hear. But let me just add that before you get to the point that you get to the publisher, the editor that's reading and accepting your book kind of has that same has to have that same feeling about your work. They like how you write. They like what you're saying. But what I really wanted to just um, talk to you a little bit about was forming a writing group. Um, I belong to a writing group. I don't know if these authors do, but um, because I don't have a degree in writing and because I'm relying on what I've read to um, perfect my craft, it was really valuable for me to get into a group of uh, women writers um, who kind of knew what they were talking about. But I did. I had to do a couple of tries, one or two, before I got to the one that really supported me. So I find that there are people that are always going to want to impose what they want you to write, what they think that your book is about, and in my opinion, those aren't the people 
outside of the editor that need to be influencing you. So when you can go to bookstores, sometimes have writing groups, libraries do, or if you're going to school, you can just start writing with a couple of people. But just sort of test the waters to see how kindly they critique you and how much they want to help you just as you will want to help them. Okay. My next question is for the first panelist. Um, I've always been interested in Hemingway, just the, in Hemingway. <laughs> and um, I tried to read one of her uh, books and I couldn't get into it, so I put it down. What, what are, uh, can you give me one of your favorites from Hemingway? Well, the first book I read by Hemingway was The Sun Also Rises, which I read in school. Okay. Um, and, and I love that book. I don't know if it has to do with the time, because my daughter just read it, and she didn't find it nearly as fascinating as, as I had. <laughs> but I, I love the way he narrated. I, it's, well, he was a journalist, and I think that's, that also draws me to it. It's very straightforward narrative and very descriptive. And uh, I love the way that book begins. It, what is it? He was a boxer at Stanford. Jack. Does anyone remember how uh, how the sun also rises begins? No. Jack whatever was a boxer at Stanford or something like that is how it starts, and it, it's like ta 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 ta, and then you want you're like okay, and what happened? So uh, I just like to say I read all four books uh, in order to uh, showcase them in Black Girls Magazine. And I'm about to turn a woman of a certain age, and I'm not afraid to say I'm going to be 50, but I'm glad to be alive. Yes, After reading all four of your books, I realized I'm not who I thought I was. And it brought about a period of reflection after reading uh, each of your stories. And that moving into my 50s, taking from each four of your books, I, I, I'm starting to become a new person. And if I hadn't read the four books, I wouldn't realize I'm not really who I thought I was because from gathering of waters um, after reading that book, I realized I've, I've missed a lot of opportunities in love and relationships because I let society, my family, um, uh, expectations of others shape who I am. And after reading Past and Love, I realized that I've passed on a lot of opportunities in life, a lot of adventures in life because of fear. And after reading her, um, I can't say it, her Russian. Okay, I thought I was a history buff. I knew everything it was about history. I've taken, been in three different colleges and taken everything history. But your book took me to a whole new light and it made me also question. I, I based my whole life on my foundation of my family and what my family told me about civil rights and racism and growing up in the South. But after reading your book and how where you are in the world, are, your truth is not my truth, I began to take a real strong look at what I based my whole life on, my grandmother and grandparents said, but a lot of that is not really factual, it was emotional. And then I read your book, um, uh, I can't get the name, Layla. Tell um, me. Tell me I know, no. the second time we met. <laughs> <laughs> the, second, the second time we met. That was the first one. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I read your book, I realized that the relationship that I thought I had with my daughter prior to reading your book, 
is not really the relationship that I have with my daughter. I'm a dictator. She, <laughs> I didn't realize that she has no say in her life and what she does to I read your book. So all four of your books impacted my life and who I'm going to become at 50. And I, I just want to uh, say that reading does give the gift of knowledge, and you all did a phenomenal job, and that if the audience read these books and give it a chance, I'm never going to Paris. I'm not going to fly to Paris, but I feel like reading... You know, reading Jacqueline's book gave me this whole new adventure of Paris, and that's about as far as I'm gonna go. But I wanna, <laughs> but I wanna thank each of you because if I'm a Southern girl who who has just really stepped into redefining my life reading this book, think about the younger women who are going to read this book and what it'll offer them as it, on their journey. So I didn't really have a question. <laughs> thank you. Hello, ladies. Um, I have two questions. Um, when you're talking about writing about history, and um, do they actually, when you send them off to publishing companies, research what you have wrote about history in your own state? Um, they do something called fact check. So after you've written your novel and gotten it to the place where your editor wants it to be, then the novel gets handed over to a copy editor. And that's the person will who will make sure that your punctuation is correct, that your spelling is correct. But they'll also fact check. So um, say, for example, in my first novel, I created within Oakland a small village called I can't even remember the name of it. And so the fact checker called me up and said, we can't find this city. Is this the correct spelling? Well, I had made it up to camouflage a real city. So yes, they do check to the extent that they can. Oh, OK, because see, number one, I'm not writing a novel. Mine's just poetry. I just do the history part of growing up. OK. And the second question is for basically all of y'all. Um, if you were an English 100, 101 teacher and you never read your book, but you base, your teacher asked you to write a paper solely on your title, would you take offense of what, what, what I would have to write about your title? Would, I mean, you know, would you consider it plagiarism if I never read it but wrote my own story for a grade? based on your type? I don't think it could be plagiarism if you've never read the book. Mm -hmm. But it would give you, um, you would be uh, interesting. But you would be inspired by the title to write something. I think mm -hmm. that would be flattering. Oh, OK. Yeah. To send it to a publisher, even though I have your title, where well, I'd be plagiarism, your title but not read your book. This is what I'm asking. Uh, you see what I mean? Um, I don't I've, think so. Your title might be Sugar, but I, and I wrote a whole two and a half pages or something on Sugar, uh -huh. and I sent it to a publishing company uh -huh. without even reading your book, but your title yeah. fascinated. Titles have been used over mm -hmm. and over and over again. Mm -hmm. oh, OK, thank you. But interesting. <laughs> Thanks again, ladies. Um, for coming. And Ms. McFadden, I want to thank you for making me feel normal because I'm writing, a first-time writer, 
and I can't function and clutter either. <laughs> and periodically, I have to go to a hotel alone without my husband and son and check into Old Town Alexandria, which is my go-to place, just in order to write. <laughs> but a question I have is, um, as a first-time writer of a novel, one of my characters in the novel, they, I have a procrastinator club of women who are inspiring each other to um, try to obtain goals, and she wants to, one wants to be a poet. And so in her writing poetry, I kind of started writing the poetry and gotten away from the novel, and I'm 90% done with the book of poetry and notes. So my question is, in writing your first your first project, did you write something else? Did that get actually, did you see it to fruition, your first project, or did you end up writing something else and then had to go back to your first project? Um, can I, I'd yes. like to address yes. that. When I first started writing, I started off um, writing a collection of short stories loosely based on my mom and her experiences in Mississippi. And then I got struck by this idea to write a story about a woman who was inspired by Tina Turner to make changes in her life. And I could not let go of that. I just kept thinking about it and what the story would be about. And so I dropped the collection of short stories and I went to that idea which turned into my first novel. So um, for me, it was whatever was driving me, and the other stories weren't at that time. So yeah, you can do whatever you, you want. Mm -hmm. And then the other question is, do you do any of you have a go-to place? Because it's something about water in Alexandria and, and National Harbor, where I can go and write 15 pages and just write freehand. It's, it's a go-to place, and I was wondering, and sometimes my family thinks, I'm a little weird that I have to like check out and go get a hotel room and be closer to that area, but it's my go-to place when I'm blocked. I don't. I don't, but I did want to go back to your first question because okay. my first novel is, um, it's called Tell Me Something True. And uh, it's based, it starts with a diary okay. that, um, that this mother writes to her daughter. And uh, the basis for that novel was the diary. I, I got pregnant, and then I started thinking, what if I die? And uh, sorry. And uh, this daughter is never going to know me, and she's only going to know me through what other people say, and I didn't want that to happen. So I started writing a diary for her. Um, and that diary is actually the beginning. It, at, in the beginning, it was the beginning of the book, verbatim. Uh, dear... Allegra is her name, but in the book it was Gabriela, and everything, and, and, and the journal, I still have it, uh, but chunks of that are in the book, so I think it's interesting that your poetry is there too, and I personally do not have a go-to place. My go-to place is someplace quiet, with no music, no one speaking to me, and no one talking to me, or I get in a very bad mood. <laughs> My go-to place is, is very similar to that, and I think it's, you know, everybody has a different process and I, I I hear you when you say that sometimes people think you're weird or you know sometimes I think the best thing I can do for my writing is go to the movies that day and something will come to me in the movies and of course you know my husband didn't think that was that was work um, so that was kind of a problem but um, I've, I've, I've advised a lot of students and and sometimes they have a, a ritual that they do or they have a desk that they sit at or they need 
to have music or they need to have no music or they can only write from seven to nine o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. or you know everybody mm -hmm. has these little things that, that kind of help them and if you know what your thing is then then you're really in a great place and just yes. go with that mm -hmm. yeah thank you so much <coughs> ladies thank you so much Bernice McFadden Jacqueline Luckett Rekha Rizzuto and Leila Kobo it was fabulous thank you thank you, thank you. Judy, the reception and the book selling. Yes, so we. Um, well, I, first I'd like to say I second that. It was it was really a wonderful afternoon and and so inspiring. Um, so please join us downstairs on the second floor. You can either take the elevator or the stairs, and it's the uh, it's out in the corridor. Barnes and Noble is there. We have some refreshments and. Um, the four authors will be downstairs signing copies of their books. Thank you again for coming. Thank you.